Anna, the more shows we do, the more it feels that the wheels of government are powerful but slow. So if you want to get something done, the reason perhaps you decided to get involved in politics in the first place, it might be easier to just use a shortcut. You don't want to write a bill? Cut and paste from another one. The states, because I didn't realize just how many copycat bills there are out there right now. You don't want to go through the rigmarole of amendments in a House vote? Do it under suspension of the rules. Mr. Speaker, I move to suspend the rules and pass H.R. 2663. You want to pass a bill in the Senate without debate, without filibuster? Do it under unanimous consent. I ask unanimous consent that the Senate consider the following nomination. Calendar number is 534. Or you're the president and you just don't want to involve Congress at all. Just sign an executive order. I'm an executive order and I pretty much just happened. But the one entity that was, to my knowledge, unable to use shortcuts was the one which determines how the Constitution applies to us. America's final arbiter, the Supreme Court. And let me guess how wrong you were. How wrong was I? Hi again, everyone. It's 5 o'clock in New York. Following the Supreme Court's refusal to block Texas's new law that all but bans abortion in the state, there's been a barrage of criticism and harsh scrutiny over the Supreme Court's shadow docket. You're listening to Civics 101. I'm Nick Capodice. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And today we're talking about the shadow docket, Supreme Court decisions that we know very little about. Um, Justice Amy Coney Barrett gave a speech uh, in April at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library where she said, you know, you guys think we're all partisan hacks, but like, don't just read the media, like read our opinions, you know, decide for yourselves. It's also perfectly fair game to say that the court got it wrong. But I think if you're going to make the latter claim that the court got it wrong, you have to engage with the court's reasoning first. And I think you should read the opinion and see, well, does this read like something that was purely... To which my response is, great. What if there's no opinion to read? This is Stephen Vladek. He holds the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at University of Texas School of Law. Uh, He has a book on the shadow docket. He has also testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee on the shadow docket. And... This is quite the introduction. I promise it's worth it. And... He has argued in front of the Supreme Court three times. How'd he do? 0 for 3. 0 for 3. Quick funny civics aside, the first time he was in the Supreme Court, Justice Anthony Kennedy threw him the curviest curveball ever. Do you think Marbury versus Madison is right? Particularly as to the... That is a hilarious and impossible question to answer before the Supreme Court. And the reason it's hilarious is because Marbury versus Madison is the case where the Supreme Court gave itself the power to rule on constitutionality. So it's like the case that defined what the Supreme Court is. Um, Okay, but let's get back to the shadow docket. What does this term mean? The the term was actually coined in 2015 um, by a professor at the University of Chicago named Will Bode. Um, And it's not meant to be nefarious. It's really an umbrella term. That's supposed to cover basically all of the stuff that the U.S. Supreme Court does other than the big, fancy merits rulings that it hands down every year. So, you know, we spend a lot of time every May and June talking about big rulings on affirmative action, abortion, same-sex marriage, guns, campaign finance, you know, pick your favorite socially divisive issue. 
We've done, what, like 15 episodes on socially divisive Supreme Court decisions? Yeah, like more, maybe? Uh, From Dred Scott to Roe to Tinker to Citizens United. These massive decisions that affect our daily lives. And we love learning about those. We love talking about those. And as each spring comes to a close, as May turns into June, the nation waits with bated breath to see those new rulings come down. We have breaking news from the Supreme Court. It is a landmark decision for the LGBTQ community. The justice is ruling that it is illegal for workers to be dismissed from... And the reality is that, you know, those 60 to 70 rulings are a tiny fraction of the Supreme Court's total workload. Um, That most of the work the court does is through unsigned, unexplained summary orders um, that are public... Um, so it's not like they're inaccessible, but they're inscrutable. I mean, they're, you know, if, even with a law degree, it's hard to figure out what to make of them. Um, and, you know, when Professor Bode coined the term in 2015, he wasn't trying to suggest that anything especially nefarious was afoot. Um, rather, his point was just that we ought to be paying more attention to that side of the court's work. So when we use the term shadow docket, we're talking about work that the Supreme Court does that's not the tried and true ruling on an opinion. Yeah. And Supreme Court justices have been doing this work since the beginning of our nation. And just to be clear, I want to put air quotes around the term shadow docket. Uh, Not everybody uses that term. Justice Samuel Alito has actively criticized it, saying the term insinuates something sinister. But it is a relatively new term, right? Because I haven't heard of it before. Why are we suddenly talking about this now? Right. So the court has stepped in to decide things on an emergency basis for a long time. I've got some famous examples. In 1953, the court stepped in to halt the execution of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, who were convicted of espionage, and then allowed it to continue the next day. Uh, Likewise, Justice Stephen Douglas ordered a halt of bombing in Cambodia in 1973, but then he was soon overruled by the whole court. These were both shadow docket orders. But to your question, we're talking about it a lot more now because there has been a big increase in orders of the court that are political in nature, not just sort of -of run-of-the-mill procedural stuff. Well, how does that look? How do shadow docket decisions differ from the ones that we've talked about before? The kinds of cases that we watch out for and talk about on the show, those are called merits cases. And just to juxtapose the difference between that and the shadow docket, let's go through the journey of a merits case. Hannah, you broke the law. What did I do? You know what you did. You did something you shouldn't have and you were fine. I did something I shouldn't have. Hypotheticals are very difficult. You argue that the thing you did is speech, it's protected by the First Amendment, and that the law you broke is unconstitutional. So it goes to one of the 94 federal district courts. Lawyers do research. Your case is argued. You lose. But you're a fighter, Hannah. You don't give up so easy. You appeal it up to the circuit court. And here, lawyers write briefs, wonderful, succinct documents outlining their legal reasoning. Uh, Three judges read those briefs. They have lawyers in. They ask them some questions. And then they affirm the lower court's decision. They say, yeah, that law is legit and constitutional. Hannah, you shouldn't have done what you did. And you deserve that fine. But you don't take that sitting down, and your lawyer petitions for a writ of certiorari asking the Supreme Court to hear your case. Now, they get about 8,000 cert petitions every year. They only pick about 60. The odds are not in your favor. But lo and behold, four out of nine justices agree, yeah, we need to weigh in on that McCarthy case. 
It's scheduled to be heard in the highest court of the land. You've got more briefs. You've got Amakai, friends of the court, brought in to testify. There's an hour-long argument. Justices deliberate, and then when May finally rolls around, they read their opinion. You see how each justice voted, and the whole thing took a couple of years. The court will now read its opinion in the case of McCarthy v. Braintree. The question of determining speech actions, especially related to those who host public radio podcasts, is complex and worth lengthy consideration. By contrast, what we call a shadow docket ruling would be that a party could skip that entire process by appealing directly to the Supreme Court to issue an emergency order. No arguments. No opinion, no signatures, just an order sent late at night. Like it actually happens late at night? Not always, but often, yeah. There was this pattern, especially, gosh, in 2020, 2021, where we had like 10 p.m., 11 p.m., 11.58 p.m., 2.17 a.m. I don't think that's, you know, to me, that's not the hill to die on. Like, yes, they come down late at night. If everything else was fine about them, the fact they come down late at night would not be a problem. But I think it reinforces how much of a departure it is from the court's normal operating procedure to be handing down orders like this, you know, outside of that flow. So the, the, the joke about the book is that, you know, if I'm really being faithful to everything, the book will be one inscrutable page handed down at 11.58 p.m. on a Friday night. But I don't think my publisher is going to go for that gag. What sorts of cases do they decide this way? Stephen gave me a few recent examples. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, last September when the Supreme Court refused to block Texas's controversial six-week abortion ban, um, that was on the shadow docket. Um, you know, in January, when the court blocked the Biden administration's um, OSHA uh, proposed, uh, rule to require large employers to have a vaccinator test requirement, that was on the shadow docket. Um, in February, when the court um, put back into effect uh, congressional district maps in Alabama, that two different lower courts had held to violate the Voting Rights Act. That was on the shadow docket. Um, so, you know, we're just seeing, Nick, so many more of these decisions that are producing immediate, massive, real-world effects um, that the justices are handing down, you know, not always without explanation, but with far less explanation, with far more truncated explanations. Um, and in context in which, at least historically, they weren't supposed to issue relief. They weren't supposed to upset the apple cart unless particular things were true that don't appear to be true. Um, so, you know, we're seeing just this. It's it's no one thing by itself. It's the rise of so many more of these rulings having so many so much broader effects um, in contexts that are both inconsistent and increasingly in seeming defiance of the court's own rules for what it's doing. And we're going to get into what people see as problems with the shadow docket, as well as some numbers on how much more prevalent these decisions have been in the last few years right after the break. But first, Nick and I just want to tell you that Civics 101 is listener supported. If you like our show and our mission to simplify the tangles of governmental systems, make a donation at our website, civics101podcast.org. We don't mind if you do it late at night. Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, we are in the district to talk to the people 
that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead with Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. All right, we're back and we're talking about the shadow docket. Uh, So, Nick, you said these sorts of emergency decisions have been happening for hundreds of years, but lately there has been a big increase. Like, how big are we talking? During the George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations combined, we're talking about 16 years total, there was a grand total of eight cases where the federal government appealed directly to the Supreme Court for emergency relief. But in the Trump administration? In four years, the Trump administration went to the Supreme Court 41 times. Now, you know, folks disagree about whether that's because lower courts were out to get Trump or because Trump's policies were terrible, um, right? You know, shockingly, that tends to break down on how you feel about President Trump. But what no one can dispute is how much that turbocharges things um, and how much that really sort of ratcheted up the pressure on the shadow docket when the federal government, the most common influential player in the Supreme Court, right, is going back to the well over and over again asking the justices for this kind of relief. One of the most controversial decisions that Stephen mentioned was the court's refusal to block Texas's six-week abortion ban. Breaking news out of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has issued an opinion on that major abortion case out of Texas. The justices, by a conservative majority, have decided to allow that law in Texas, which effectively bans nearly all abortions in that state. But to me, there's a major difference here because that's not the court doing something. That's the court not doing something. Can we consider inaction the same as action when it comes to the shadow docket? The problem is, is that if the court had not spent the previous year reaching out over and over again to block California and New York COVID restrictions in context in which historically the court had sat on its hands, um, right, then I think the SB8 ruling, the Texas abortion ruling from September would be a lot more defensible. Um, but it's it, when the court says over here, we're going to intervene over and over and over again in context where we never have before and in context in which we probably aren't even allowed to. But over here, we're not going to intervene because our hands are tied by the same things that we weren't bound by in those other cases. You know, when we talk about members of the Supreme Court doing things that fall in line with one party or another, I'm reminded of a quote that you used in your episode on the judicial branch. It was said by Chief Justice Roberts, uh, quote, we do not have Obama judges or Trump judges, that we have an independent judiciary. Well, and and the irony is, and and Chief Justice John Roberts' line about how there are no Obama judges and there are no Trump judges um, was in a case the court resolved through a shadow docket order. But regardless, I'm very glad you brought up Roberts because one of the arguments made in favor of these shadow docket decisions is 
hey, you're just angry because we have a conservative majority court, right? If it was 5-4 the other way, progressives would totally be fine with it. But Roberts demonstrates that isn't necessarily true. I actually think the chief justice is a really remarkable figure here because John Roberts, who is no one's idea of a liberal, um, right, who is a dyed-in-the-wool, like, establishment Washington conservative, um, has been this fascinating player as the court's center of gravity has shifted. Um, so, you know, when Anthony Kennedy was still on the court and Kennedy was the median vote, Rob, we very rarely saw Roberts as the key player in a shadow docket ruling. But once Justice Kennedy retired in 2018... Roberts became that median vote. And where he went, so too did the court. And what that meant was that, you know, in the early part of the COVID cases, um, where there were these claims for, you know, religious liberty challenges to COVID restrictions, Roberts was the key vote in joining the liberals in not allowing those challenges. And what he kept saying over and over again is, it's not that I, Roberts, am unsympathetic to these claims. It's that these are this is not the context for vindicating them, right? That we should not be using emergency orders to reach these hard, difficult, challenging questions. You know, those should be merits cases. And as a result, those challenges did not go through. They just weren't successful. But in September of 2020, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed Trump away. Intends to pick this woman as his Supreme Court nominee to replace the late Justice. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Her name is Amy Coney Barrett. She met with the president at the White House Monday. So when Justice Barrett is confirmed to replace Justice Ginsburg, Roberts is no longer the median vote. Um, And as early as one month into Barrett's tenure, we see Roberts joining the liberals. In case after case, what we're seeing the chief do, he's writing separately. And he's saying, I'm sympathetic to this challenge. I don't like what the state is doing. I have problems with this, but not, you know, this, the shadow docket is not where we should block it. Um, we saw this again in February in the Alabama redistricting case where John Roberts, no fan of the Voting Rights Act, um, right? He wrote the majority opinion in Shelby County that tore a big hole in the Voting Rights Act. Roberts says, you know, I think we might want to revisit our interpretation of this provision of the Voting Rights Act, but the shadow docket's no place to do it. Roberts was then on the losing side of 5-4 shadow docket decisions seven times. These 5-4 decisions are the justices pretty much voting along ideological lines. Yeah. Uh, And all the shadow docket decisions Stephen talked about, it was the same five in the majority. Justices Barrett, Alito, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Thomas. And then finally in this Clean Water Act case in early April, right, for the first time he doesn't just dissent in one of these cases, but he actually joins Justice Kagan who has been repeatedly criticizing the majority for, in her terms, abusing the shadow docket. Now we finally have John Roberts endorsing that critique. And I just, you know, I don't know how you look at John Roberts and and his now criticism of the shadow docket and say that this is ideological, um, right? Because if, if John Roberts, who actually is sympathetic to these religious liberty claims, is sympathetic to the voting rights claims, doesn't like abortion, um, right, is with the other conservatives on the merits in all of these cases and keeps dissenting because he thinks they're taking shortcuts. If that's not a message about how broken this is, I don't know what is. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's enough of an answer, as I think so many conservatives are want to, to do, to just say, oh, well, Roberts is a squish. Um, you know, no, he's been clear that he's with them on the merits. He just thinks that there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Hang on, what's a squish? Squish is a term that goes back to the Reagan administration, 
politicians use it to describe members of their own party who sort of hem and haw, who can't be counted on to back controversial initiatives. Can we just stop here for a minute? Because my big question is, if we make the assumption that the same five justices vote one way and the same four the other, couldn't we just say that the shadow docket is speeding up the inevitable? Like, sure, we don't know for certain how a justice is ever going to vote, but if it's about a big social issue like abortion, we've got a pretty good idea. So what does Stephen think is the biggest problem with decisions made this way? It starts with a basic proposition, which is that what makes a court a court is its ability to defend itself, um, right? Is its ability to provide a rationale for its decision. In other words, the reason the Supreme Court can be the Supreme Court is that it lays out its reasoning for its decisions. Yes, and that is Stephen's first problem. So, you know, problem number one is that the absence of any rationale deprives the public of the opportunity to to access um, the principles, to, to assess them, right? Not, not necessarily for agreement or disagreement, but for whether we think the court is doing legal, like judicial things. Um, problem number two is the less the court writes, the easier it is for it to be inconsistent. When the court at time one rules for one party one way and writes 50 pages as to why, it's very easy for a different party at time two to say, look what you wrote in that case, right? We're now in the same situation. We should therefore win. Well, if the court has written nothing, then it's not bound, right, by what it didn't write at time one. So if these shadow docket decisions are happening with the same five justices in the majority, how will it end? Will decisions made outside of merits cases continue to be more and more common? Maybe. There's just no way of knowing how this will change as justices enter and leave the court. Stephen told me that for those who are critical of this uptick in shadow docket decisions, there are three steps that could result in it changing. So I think step one is getting folks to realize that this really is a big deal. Um, And that it's not strictly partisan or ideological, that there are, you know, entirely neutral reasons to be deeply concerned with how the Supreme Court is behaving. Step two is more self-awareness on the part of the courts. And then if neither of those, you know, succeed, step three is Congress really ought to start thinking seriously about how it relates, right, to the court's institution. Um, And why, when we talk about Supreme Court reform, we shouldn't be distracted by the big ticket but never going to happen items like adding seats to the court or term limits. We really should be focused on the far more important, palatable and possible um, technical reforms that actually might reallocate some of these dynamics. Nick, you started with the wheels of government. To bring this back to the wheel, to the big, powerful, slow wheel of government, I can understand people wanting to dodge that wheel to get things done quickly. I can too. But if everybody's dodging the wheel, why do we have a wheel in the first place? All right, well, you can't tell by listening to it, but in honor of this episode, I'm recording these credits late at night after everyone's asleep. You can maybe hear my washing machine in the background. And that'll do it for this episode on the Shadow Docket. I tried to put in a midnight judge's joke, but I just couldn't figure out how to do it. This episode was written and produced by me, Nick Capodice, with Hannah McCarthy. Our staff includes Jackie Fulton. Christina Phillips is our senior producer. And Rebecca Lavoie, our executive producer. 
Music in this episode by the old greats, Blue Dot Sessions, Azura, Peter Sandberg, Apollo, The New Fools, Christian Anderson, Holzness CCO, Juanitos, Ari De Niro, Jesse Gallagher, and the man who never missed the Swiss Miss Christmas list, Chris Zabriskie. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio.